0: This is your boy, DC, the Brain Supreme Tag Team. And you're listening to the Shadows Podcast. Whoop, there it is. Sprinkle!
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Shadows Podcast. I'm your host, Trip Odenheimer, and today I am joined by Alan Payne. He spent 31 years in the movie rental business. He was the longest lasting Blockbuster franchisee, 25 years. He's the author of Built to Fail, the inside story of Blockbuster's inevitable bust. Very good book. I can't recommend it enough. I actually have it sitting right here next to me. Sir, welcome to The Shadows Podcast.
0: Great to be here. Thanks.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to get a chance to talk to you. You're located in—correct me if I'm wrong—Austin, Texas.
0: I'm in uh, actually in the small town called Spicewood, which is right outside of Austin, right. which is, uh, I guess, it's most famous for being the home of Willie. So, yep, that's right. We talked yeah. about that last yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and you're you're right around Longhorn Country, even though you're a Red Raider. I'm I'm a diehard Red Raider that lives in Longhorn Country, and it and it's kind of fun actually. Yeah,
1: especially right now. It's a good time. I think you got to yeah, because we're better
0: than them in most sports. So that's great. It's great. Yeah.
1: Exactly. I think their baseball team's even better, I think, than, than Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least for the past yeah. couple years, they have been.
0: Yeah.
1: All right. Well, first thing before we get going is we're going to go through our five rounds uh, brought to you by one of our partners, Giant Worldwide. Head over to giant.tv forward slash shadows. First question for you obviously got to ask a, a movie related question favorite movie genre uh
0: favorite movie genre i i you know i'm i'm into history mm-hmm. so i think i think uh hi- historical movies are probably my favorite and they were the most impactful i like a lot of movies but yeah. and i would not be i would not consider myself a movie buff even though i was in the movie business but i've watched a lot of movies but my my favorite are uh historical movies
1: Favorite historical film.
0: Uh, the most recent one is the one about Winston Churchill, uh, uh leading up to world war II, mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm embarrassed, but the name escapes me right now. What, it, Oh, it's, it's, uh, what's the name? I can't remember the name of it, but it tells a story of, of, uh, you know, Churchill coming to power and leading up to uh, the beginning of World War II and, the, and the, uh, the the movie ends right there, which is kind of disappointing to me because I kind of want to keep going. But, yeah. Uh, Darkest Hour? Yeah, that's it. Darkest, Darkest, Darkest hour. hour. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: If you could have a job for a day just to try it out, see if you like it, what would it be?
0: Oh, pilot. Pilot. Com- commercial pilot. Yep. Yeah. We talked
1: about that last time. No, Planes. No,
0: no, no question. I'd, I'd love to fly a commercial airplane. Okay. Yeah. What? Biggest pet peeve. Uh, biggest pet peeve is, uh, uh, intellectual dishonesty mm. uh, in, 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 in politics and business. Yeah. Uh, like,
1: it seems like there was a lot of that running through that book.
0: Yeah. I've just, I've just, uh, of looking at what appears at least to me to be a fact and just denying it. Yeah. And I, and I, and I see it a lot, you know, Uh, probably most often in politics, but, but that, that was the bad, that was the bad political side of business as well. And it seems like the larger businesses get the more political they get, which is, is inevitable. Mm -hmm. Some manage it well and others don't blockbuster didn't
1: book recommendation other than yours because we're going to talk about your book
0: well that's interesting because i just and i i i knew some of these questions and i thought that one might come up so i'm going to tell yeah. you the one right here. you even had it ready yeah i do because i'm it's it's called uh this naked mind control alcohol and uh i'm not an abuser of alcohol but and and, and i I don't want to get into why I, I, I read it, but uh, it's it's it can be applied to so many uh, behavioral things, mm-hmm. and it's and it's uh, it's it's changed a lot of my life for the good. And uh, anybody that is dealing with any sort of uh, addiction uh, or just any kind of behavioral issues, they want to uh, try to understand why they're doing it and how to change it. It's a great place to start.
1: Yeah. I think that's an interesting book, even for someone who's not like you said, necessarily, uh, have you heard of it? I vague Someone mentioned it a while back. Cause we were talking okay. about uh, something in a classroom and they were talking about how they read that book, even though they, they have never had any sort of addiction yeah. to any substance, but it helps them yeah. get inside the mind yes. of it's, it's easy just to say, stop smoking, stop drinking. Yeah.
0: It's a great, it's a great story. And the person that did it, uh, that, that wrote the book, her name is Annie Grace, she was a marketing executive and she's completely changed her life trajectory to helping with this issue. And she's got a, she's got a huge movement going on that, that I, I think is just fantastic. So Mm -hmm. that's the reason I bring that up. Okay.
1: And that'll also be listed along with your book on the book recommendations. Okay site and then last question you probably know this one's coming too we'd love to ask this one to people I, I love to get people's responses dinner for three historical figures who would you have dinner with
0: oh wow with two other people two historical you, figures get, you get three historical figures. i get three historical figures oh wow uh oh well one would be who I listed in, uh, mentioned in the book, was name was Herb Kelleher who started Southwest airlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, no question. That's one, um, uh, Ronald Reagan. It's a good one. I would say Ronald Reagan, particularly in today's I, I would l- wouldn't it be great to get his take on what's going on? These oh days? my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he, His he was son's
1: kind of a, he, he's very vocal as well.
0: I haven't followed him. Is he, is he talking about some of this? He's very vocal. Yeah. Oh, I need, I need to check him out then. Uh, okay. That would be the other one. And, um, okay. Then I'll, then I'll just, I'll just, th- this may be a cop out, but I'll say Annie Grace, who was, who's the, the author of naked mind. Yeah. I, I would, I, she's, she's very uh, a self-made person that didn't grow up in a, uh, in a situation that you would think would lead to, to what she's done. Uh, And I've just come to have great admiration for what she's doing. Uh, So there's, those are the three.
1: Okay. All right. Well, you survived five rounds (laughs) uh, presented by giant worldwide. Now let's dive into your story and in in the book. I mean, we can obviously sit here and and talk just about the book, but, Uh, One thing I think is really cool about doing this show is, for example, like, you know, we watched the last Blockbuster documentary, pick up this book and read about it, but find out like a little bit more about you as a person. So talk to us about like your
0: upbringings. Where did you grow up? What did your parents do? Um, I grew up in, 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 in Texas in a, in a small town called Breckenridge, uh, which is, uh. Geographically, it's about 100 miles uh, west of, of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. A very small town of five 6,000 people. Uh, in, a, in a very conservative uh, baby boomer, my dad was a World War II veteran. Uh, hmm. The first person in his family that graduated from college, had a geology degree, moved from Tennessee to make his fortune in, in the oil business, which never happened. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't, my dad was a hard worker and the, probably the kindest man I ever met, but he didn't have a whole lot of uh, drive to, you know, to achieve. Um, uh, and in a small town like that, I, I wasn't around, uh, and i this is familiar to me because I've talked to my kids about it because they got a completely different upbringing around a lot of successful people, um. Uh, so they got exposure to that. I didn't uh, mm-hmm. so uh, you know I graduated from high school went to Texas Tech, and in many ways was kind of a fish out of water because I was there with a lot of big city kids that had been 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 around uh, successful people and I hadn't uh, and just kind of got my way through college and 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 went to went to work for a grocery company because uh, that's how I put myself through school. my parents didn't have much money so back then it was, it was not that big of a deal to pay for your school, you know, because it was a lot cheaper then than it is now. You can't do that now. But, Mm. uh, so I worked in grocery stores and put myself through college and went to work for a company that, that i talk about a lot in the book called H-E-B. Yeah. Uh, that turned out to probably the best thing that ever happened to me because they were, uh, an exceptionally well-run business that was really kind of starting to try to find its, its footing in the, in bigger business. They had been more of a family run operation, still are, but they're, but they're, uh, they're, they're, they're truly idolized kind of as, as one of the best retail organizations in the entire world. And so I got, I got exposure to that in their kind of formative years and competed directly with Blockbuster. And that's, that's how I got into the video business. It was not through a choice of my own. They came to me one day and asked me, um, so, you know, this was 1987 and Blockbuster had just opened its first handful of stores. They had about 30 stores open in the country and, uh, H-E-B decided that it was such a good business and they had a lot owned a bunch of real estate. They'd like to test it and see if, see if they could do that. So they bought out a, a company, uh, a, a company that, that was running video in their stores, uh, a guy named uh, Craig O'Donovich, who i talk a lot about in the book, who, who really taught me the video business. And, uh, I understood how to run stores better than he did. So I got, I, I became a part of the organization to run the stores and, uh, it kind of went from there. And, and we took his business model that he had developed and competed with Blockbuster against that. So I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but, but that's kind of where I came from. I, uh, very small town, very, very conservative background It's going, you know. Uh, so that's that's where I came from.
1: No, that's that's perfect. I was, I was going to ask, too, like while you were at Texas Tech or even in high school, what did you see yourself doing? You know how, you know, as kids, <laughs> like I'm going to be a pediatrician in the next 20. What, what did you see yourself doing?
0: Well, it's it's interesting. I, I I figured out in high school and I think it was because I didn't have good math teachers, but I was terrible at math. And uh, but I was a pretty good writer. I could I Mm. could I could I could get things on paper pretty well. So I decided I was going to I was going to major in advertising. Mm. Uh, I got into that and and because I thought I could do well at it and I could avoid most of math classes in college, Uh, and that eventually turned into a, a a public relations degree. So that I got out of, I graduated from college with a, with a PR degree and a minor in business. And uh, actually, because I didn't have a major in business, I had to kind of play some games to actually get an interview with HEB when, when I graduated because they were only, they were only interviewing uh, business uh, candidates. In fact, I, I remember going to the interview rooms because I couldn't sign up and stood outside of an interview room until the interview, he walked out and I walked in and said, I don't have, I couldn't sign up because I don't have a business degree. Would you talk to me? And sat and it was the happened to be the VP of human resources. And uh, he liked me and invited me down for a second to interview to the offices. And it kind of went from there. Oh, but, wow. Uh, yeah. I, I had heard so many good things about HEB from some business professors at tech uh, that I really wanted to talk to them. Yeah, and uh, I had a minor in business, and I'd taken a bunch of business classes, but I I didn't have a major, so I couldn't even sign up. But but he had an opening, and we talked, and went from there.
1: I talk about how could have gone different trajectory there. Oh yeah, career.
0: Wow. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I I had just gotten married, Mm -hmm. so I you know I really just needed a job. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't thinking all that much about ca- career tra- trajectory, but I'd, I'd worked in several grocery stores during my college years, felt like I knew a little bit about the business and uh, kind of talked my way into a, to a job with H-E-B and got into their uh, management training program and, and and went from there.
1: So H-E-B must be like a Texas. is kind of the hotbed for.
0: Yeah, them. it's the it's that's the uh, that's the only place they operate is in addition in Mexico. They have about thirty stores in Mexico, uh, but all of their stores in the United States are in Texas, all of them. But they they dominate. Mm-hmm. Uh, they absolutely dominate, and uh, they dominate all of Central and South Texas as well as Houston, which they moved into just about twenty years ago. Uh, so they've gone from nothing to. By far the number one grocery chain in Houston in 20 years, and that's a that's a metropolitan area of seven eight million people. They're get they're they're starting to do the same thing in Dallas Fort Worth right now. They've opened their first few stores there, and give them give them a decade. But in 10 years, they'll be the number one They'll be the number one chain in Dallas as well. Nobody can compete with them. I I mean, literally, no nobody can. Uh, They 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 kick everybody's butt. They're just and you know. The bigger they get, the harder it will be to stay that mm-hmm. good. Uh, and I hope they do because the uh, Charles, Butt, who, you know, gets the credit for all of that. He's in his, I think he's about 80 years old now and I, and, and still runs the business. Uh, wow. I guess there's some question as to, you know, when he's gone, how do they, you know, who's going to, who's going to take up the torch? Yeah. Cause he doesn't have any kids. Wow.
1: Yeah. Texas has some has some gems with H E B and Bucky's and oh <laughs> you familiar with Bucky's oh I love me some Bucky's yeah I was in one yesterday were you
0: oh yeah I love Bucky's
1: Bucky's is uh, an experience we have one in because they've started to expand now like they got one in South Carolina which is kind of odd but uh just they have one about an hour and a half up the road so when students come through here I usually bring them a pack of Beaver Nuggets. Yeah, and then I'm like, if you haven't been to Bucky's, it's an experience. Cleanest bathroom you've ever seen. You get lost in. It's like Sam's Club of, of yeah. grocery store or of gas stations. But
0: to, to to a retail junkie like me, the first time I walked into one of those, I I was just blown away. I mean, yeah, this, this guy this guy just completely broke the mold and every all the assumptions about what a gas station can be. He just totally broke the mold.
1: You don't even want to go in another gas station.
0: I know. In, in <laughs> fact, uh, we, we went to the one in, in, in Bastrop, Texas yesterday. And I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, the QT chain. It's called, I, I yep. don't even remember. Okay. They're mm-hmm. really, really good at what they do as well, but they yeah. do it on a much smaller scale. There's one of them right across the street from the Buckies in Bastrop. And normally, mobbed. I, and, and I made a point to, to check how many cars were at the gas pumps and there was probably six. Yeah. At Bucky's, there was at least a hundred, at least a hundred.
1: Those six were cause they didn't want to fight with that hundred.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Probably so. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it, it's, and, and I, I, you know, I kind of feel for the QT guys because they, they, they do a really good job of what they do, but they can't compete with that. Mm-mm. And it's kind of the same way with, uh, with HUB. I mean, you can talk of all you want, but if, if you're going to open up a traditional grocery store across the street from an H you're going to lose. Yeah. You don't, have, you don't have a chance. And anybody that's never seen an H E B would not, doesn't understand what I'm saying, but it's, it's a completely different ball game that they run.
1: Well, even in your book, you talked about how they were kind of game changers, even with like the video rental within the stores, you were the unit director there and blockbuster, passed on an opportunity to buy was it video central
0: yeah yeah because because that's what it
1: was heb video central
0: yeah the the interesting thing is is you know all virtually all and anybody that's that that was around in the 80s and the 90s knows that you didn't just go to blockbuster or video store to rent movies they were everywhere oh mom and pops yeah and so but but about a fourth of the business was done in supermarkets. Mm -hmm. So the fact that HUB was renting videos in their grocery stores was not unusual. What was unusual is that they decided to take a step further and open up freestanding stores to compete with Blockbuster and all the other guys. Uh, They were the only, and I think this is really, really important, they were the only retailer that got into that business, the only one. Nobody else did. Uh, all of the all of the freestanding video stores that you saw back in those days were either owned by a blockbuster or some sort of entrepreneurial organization that that, and there were a few back then uh, that that got into the business. But there, none of the traditional retailers said, "Wow, that looks like a great opportunity. Let's get into that." HEB was the only one. Uh, so. We were, we were the only video chain back then that actually had the backing of a, of a fully developed retail organization. And that was blended by the entrepreneurial minds of Craig and his team that, came, that, that, that joined HEB. So you blended those two things together and uh, we were on a very small scale, but we were totally dominated Totally dominant in, in the markets that we operated in. It's, you know, right across the street from Blockbuster stores, we just we just killed them. We were doing two three times the amount of sales that they were, uh, and much more profitable than they were. So we knew that we had a business model that was that was superior to theirs. And just through some, you know, as I tell the story in the book, Charles Butt decided in in 1993 that he wanted to get out of the business and yeah. and I still don't fully understand why he did because we were we were very successful and very profitable and it already made him quite a bit of money but he decided he kind of wanted to get out of that business and focus hundred percent on on the, on his grocery business so he sold the stores and uh, we had 35 at the time and those, those 35 stores sold for almost a million dollars a store. Uh, and blockbuster was not the one that bought them, uh, Hollywood video, Hollywood, Hollywood video bought them I and mean, Hollywood video only had about 15 stores at the time. But, but Mark Wallace, who founded Hollywood video had been watching us for several years, knew, knew how successful we were against blockbuster and started copying what we were doing. And, uh, uh, the HUB talked to Wayne Heisega and, uh, and, and, and Steve Berard about buying our stores, who were the, you know, the top two people at Blockbuster at the time. Yep. Uh, they passed, didn't even look at the numbers, were not interested, uh, didn't even get into any serious discussions about, okay, you know, let's look, at, let's look at some financials and make a, deci- make a fully informed, intelligent decision as to whether or not we should buy your stores or not. They just got put off for some reason that's hard to understand. I don't know exactly what it was, but it never even got to a second discussion. And that's what led to Hollywood Video buying the stores. And within five years, uh, uh, Hollywood was just had a thousand stores open. And used the purchase of our stores to, to do an IPO uh, and just kind of went from there and, and used a version of our business model to just kick Blockbuster's butt all over the country. And that's what led to Blockbuster's first financial crisis. Uh, and yeah, and I, it's still a mystery to me because Blockbuster knew or they should have known how dominant we were in, in Texas against them, but mm-hmm. they were so big and, and growing so fast that, you know, maybe Action. Wayne Heisinger, who founded Holly didn't even realize, didn't even realize what we were doing to them because even though we were dominating them in some big cities like San Antonio, that was just one big city of many. And it just, maybe it just didn't matter to him. Uh, so he didn't pay any attention to us. And, and that led to, Really, their first, I think, major, major miss mm-hmm. on competition. And that was one of many.
1: And I know you talk about it in great detail in your book, but what was Video Central and eventually Hollywood Video doing on a day-to-day basis that was just completely outperforming Blockbuster? Uh,
0: it was it was mainly two things. We, we, uh, we knew that even though a video store carried... 10,000 titles or whatever uh that that new releases would always be the driver of the business that's what Mm -hmm. brought people into the stores most people anyway so we knew that we needed a business model that would make those new releases more available than anybody else and that may sound simple but it was very complicated because new releases back then cost almost 70 dollars a piece yeah uh, in vhs tapes and and the and the most of the life of a, of a new release movie is, is in the first four or five weeks. So you've got to figure out how to make a, a reasonable profit on the, on the rentals of those $70 movies, uh, you know, in a very efficient way. We had a much better way of doing that than blockbuster. We could satisfy more customers and make more money doing it than them. And most of it was because we rented movies for a day at a time, uh, uh, Blockbuster never changed. They 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 didn't do that. They thought it was a weakness, mm-hmm. and for some customers, it was a weakness. But we we determined very early on that most customers didn't care about keeping it two or three days. They just wanted the movie. Watching, I know. Yeah, and that's hard for people nowadays to understand comprehend that. But in those days, if you wanted to get a new release, you had to go to a video store. Yeah, and 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 we had them, and Blockbuster didn't. So that was. That was the number one. And then secondly, we understood that that a video store could be much more powerful if it if people went there to, to do things other than just get new releases. And and we did we we had huge inventories of, of what most people refer to as catalog movies, movies that are more than a year old. We had a huge inventory of those priced at about a third of what blockbuster would rent them for. And, and, in, and in so doing we rented about seven or eight times more of those movies than they did, which created more reasons for keep people to come to our stores over a blockbuster store. Blockbuster became a new release destination. That was about it. Mm-hmm. They rented some older movies, but not anywhere near the amount that we did. Uh, so that was the formula. And, uh, It it was kind of in keeping with the grocery industry, it was a high volume uh, approach to the business that Blockbuster never understood. We would have to generate more customer traffic just to do the same volume as a Blockbuster store would. They saw that as a weakness, we saw that as a positive. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we figured out ways to do it very efficiently and in so doing, our stores were very efficient and they were fun places to be because they were crowded Yeah, uh, on a Friday or Saturday night. You know, you you, we, you went to an HUB Video Central store and it was the place to be. You know, there were hundreds of people in those stores uh, on Friday and Saturday night. And it was a fun it was a fun environment.
1: Yeah, for those listeners out there who aren't familiar with it, Friday nights going to a video rental store was like a big deal. And. Yeah going in and seeing it and with blockbuster yeah you'd get there on a on a friday and if a copy was out you wouldn't get it for a couple of days but you'd go to the the i remember the local video stores that had like the horror sections and all that kind of stuff you'd go there it'd be back the next day or it was due back the day of and you would say what When? when's it due back what time yeah you kind of hang out and, and oh yeah
0: oh yeah and that yeah. was, and, that was and, and, you know the the to to us, it was very, it was so simple because three fourths of the movie rentals were done on Friday and Saturday. Yeah. Well, if you just kind of do the math, everything went out on Friday for the most part, and in our stores, it came back on Saturday mm-hmm. because most people watched it the day they they rented it and were fine to bring it back the next day. Blockbusters, they 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 rented. It. If you rented it on Friday, you didn't have to bring it back till Sunday or Monday in some cases. Yeah. yeah. So you would go in a Blockbuster store on a Saturday night, and there was literally nothing there on the new release wall, nothing. Mm-hmm. And we would be full. Uh, and and like you said, there would be people coming in. It, it, if the movie wasn't there, they knew it would probably be there within a matter of minutes if they just hung around.
1: Watch the Dropbox.
0: Yeah, yeah. And in most cases, we'd have somebody at the counter pulling that stuff out and handing it to customers as it was coming in. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, it was a, it was a turnover game and uh, to keep that stuff moving. And, and Blockbuster just never comprehended that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, talk to us about how
1: you ended up at Blockbuster.
0: Well, that you know, when Charles decided to sell the stores, I had a, I had a decision to make, was I going to go back to the grocery business? What I, which I, you know, obviously joined them for, or, was I going to stay in the video rental business, which I'd really come to really enjoy, uh, for a lot of reasons, but a lot of it was because we got to call our own shots. You know, we were, we were, we were literally running the business. Uh, we were just using HEB's money to run a business. Uh, we had very little interaction with, with executives at at H B unless we wanted, unless we wanted to, they didn't tell us much of anything or what to do. We, we ran our own show and I'd come to really appreciate the ability to make your own decisions and do your own stuff. So, and it just so happened that a blockbuster franchisee called me up. It was just a total coincidence. Uh, some people that my older brother knew, uh, and they had met me through them, through him. And they, they called me up and asked me if I'd like to talk about running their stores, uh, so long story short, I talked to them and, and, and determined that that was a better direction for me to go than staying at HUB. So that's how I wound up. I want, I didn't own the stores, but I ran the stores for, for a company called prime video that owned a bunch of cable TV, uh, uh systems. And they didn't really know what they were doing in the retail business. They were great cable television operators, but they were just kind of following the blockbuster playbook in in video stores, and and it, it wasn't working out for them because they were in some very competitive markets, and just it, even in Alaska, which turned out to be the longest surviving uh, blockbuster market that that we owned. Uh, in, in in fact, except for the last store in in Oregon, yeah. The, the stores in Alaska were the last ones to close. Yet, yet in 1993, Prime was having a hard time with those stores. Uh, so they hired me to do that. And what I did is I, I knew that, that H-E-B had a better business model for the business. So uh, I, I looked at it as a great opportunity to, to combine the, the Blockbuster brand, which clearly was the national leader, with right. a better business model. And that's what we did. And within, within three or four months after we had in, installed all of our programs, we were the fastest growing franchise chain in the system, mm-hmm. by far, not even close. And that's when I, I got to be so surprised that Blockbuster, even though we weren't the biggest franchise at, at the time, we, had, we, we got up to 40 stores, but uh, they just never paid any attention to what we were doing. And we would win these awards for all these achievements and stuff, particularly sales growth, but nobody ever wanted to ask us why, you know, how it was happening. So uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was just part of what I would, you know, the learning with Blockbuster Management over the years is they just had no interest in what anybody else was doing other than what was going on, you know, in their you know, ivory towers, if you want to say it, they they just didn't, they didn't have, they didn't want any exposure to other ideas.
1: In your book, there was a, a line where you mentioned someone, it's basically their philosophy was like, if it's not invented here not interested. Yeah. And how was that when you would try to talk to, I know you said you had very limited interactions with a lot of the CEOs there, but when you would have these meetings with people and you're like, you know, Hey, we should probably try this. This is, Proven this has worked in the past elsewhere. How did those conversations typically go?
0: You know, it was it was uncomfortable because I looked at the business so differently than how they did, mm-hmm. and in such more detail than they did. Uh, it was hard to have, and I don't say this to condescendingly, but it it was it was it was it was, it was difficult to have an intelligent conversation about the video business with them, right? because they were running it on such a 30,000 foot level that you couldn't talk to them intelligently about what was going on in a store. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and to me, even though Blockbuster had 9,000 stores, their success was built one store at a time. You know, the only way that was going to be successful is if each store was being well run and they just never looked at it that way. So, you know, it was, it was very hard for me to have a discussion with them about what we were doing. I would tell them what we were doing, but because they didn't even understand it at that level, the discussion would just kind of stop. Mm -hmm. And, and to me, these were elementary things about turnover and, 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 and price relationship to rents and, and customer count and customer frequency. And, and, and rents per visit and all these things that we looked at as, as a, as a compilation of everything that made the business, uh, they just didn't want to talk about it at that level of detail. And, and to me, I don't care if they were the CEO or whatever, it was not a complicated business and they needed to be interested in it at that level. And they were not, they just were not. I, you know, I tell a story about John Antioca going into our stores in Alaska and we're standing in a store that literally rents 10 times more movies than a typical blockbuster store. And I told him that it was like, it just went right over his head. It's like, so, you know, I, (laughs) it's gotta be frustrating. Yeah. I don't, I, and it's like, what else? I don't know what else to say. The store looked totally different than a blockbuster store. It's got four times the inventory in it. It's got, five times more customers in it than any blockbuster store or uh, average blockbuster store. Yet he doesn't, he doesn't have any interest in how all that happens. You know, do, do you and, think uh, a
1: lot and, of that had to do with the fact that you came over from like HEB? Do you think it was a, uh, okay, we get it. That worked over there. Or, or do you think they were just working at a ma- such a macro view of things you were so micro with how things were run day in and day out? Or do you think it was that outsider label?
0: it was a combination of both. I think, uh, you know, they, they looked at competition as somebody to either ignore or buy, uh, they had, they had determined that they didn't want to buy our stores at HEB, Therefore they were just going to ignore them. Uh, and as I told them at the time, I said, you, you realize that video, uh, uh, Hollywood Video just bought the stores, and it was and and had gone public, so it was not like this was some little outfit that didn't have access to capital. It was somebody that they needed to pay attention to. They had they they had Wall Street support. They had money to grow. You need to know what they're doing, and they're they're running a, a, a a a. a a store that has a very similar business model to what I'd been running for the last seven years. I said it to him just like that. You need to under try to understand what they're doing. You're going to need to understand how to respond to it. And I'll never forget as I tell the story in the book, I'm telling that story to the vice president of, 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 uh, of franchising. And he looked at me squarely in the eye and said, you're not there anymore. You're with Blockbuster. You need to forget all that and i'm going okay and that and that and literally that was the response i got from anybody i talked to at blockbuster they just didn't care they just didn't care and you know it was a it was a case of most of those people that got into the business in those years had made so much money i mean think about it. Wayne Heisinger bought Blockbuster for $16 million and sold it eight years later for almost 9 billion. Yeah. He had
1: waste management. So these
0: are guys. Yeah. Yeah. He, 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 he made his initial fortune in waste management, uh, took the proceeds of that and all his other partners and financial backing that he had and, and, and bought Blockbuster for $16 million and, uh, built it into, you know, a dominant brand. And, and, you know, I don't want to ever minimize in what he did. I mean, it was fabulous what he did. Nobody else had the foresight to do what he did, but he didn't, he didn't have a whole lot of interest in the operations of the business. It was just, it was just a means to make a whole bunch of money.
1: Was he the one behind the award show and the blockbuster bowl game and, you know, maybe launching a theme park? (laughs)
0: Well, the theme park, he was obviously behind. He, mm-hmm. he uh, Blockbuster was so profitable in those days that they literally could not, they had more money than they could spend on opening new stores. So they got, they started getting into other businesses, a lot of different businesses. And the most interesting one was where they bought a bunch of land to, to build Blockbuster World that was going to compete with Miami, Disney right? World. Yeah, it was somewhere in, in, in Florida. I'm not sure where, but, the whole idea was to take this massive blockbuster juggernaut brand and, and just continue to expand it into other entertainment businesses. One, one of them being theme parks, and the blockbuster was not what they thought it was. It was uh, it was not a cash flow juggernaut like they thought. It was a uh, it was it was already crippled mm-hmm. and, and and declining. And uh, all those businesses that Blockbuster had, had dabbled in, that all went away. Uh, all, all that stopped. In fact, what you mentioned, the blimp and card and all those things, that actually came later after Heisinger had had left. Was that more Bill Fields? Uh, he, he got rid of video,
1: right? And he just made it blockbuster and wanted to go more. Well, more.
0: he didn't get rid of video. He just, he just shrunk it. Uh, Bill well, from the name, he just became blockbuster after that. Right. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On the name. You're exactly right. He, uh, that was, you know, when, when, when Wayne Heisinger sold the company to Viacom his, uh, second in command, Steve Burrard ran it for about a year and then left and things were not going well at all. So Vacom hired who was probably the most sought after retail executive in the country at the time. His name was Bill Fields and he was the number two guy at Walmart. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we all assumed that that was a great hire, but Bill Fields didn't understand the rental business. You know, he had grown up in a mass merchant environment we thought that he should be able to adjust to that, you know, just look at the numbers, but he, he didn't believe in the rental business. He knew that it was the cash cow that would keep blockbuster going for a while, but he, he believed the business was going to need to transition to something else very quickly. Uh, We didn't believe that at all. And, And in fact, the business actually got kind of reborn with the, with the, a transition to DVD, which came right after Bill Fields came in and left. Uh, But yeah, he, he shrunk the rental departments in, in blockbuster stores and brought in all kinds of other products, all of which had been tried before and we knew they wouldn't sell, Mm -hmm. but he had to try it for himself. And again, it didn't sell. Uh, uh, He got into music and t-shirts and, you know, blockbuster stores can dabble in that but it's not, and, and it still some of it, but it's but it's not a consistent line of business for a rental store. People don't go there to buy those kind of things. And he was convinced he could attract those kind of customers and he never did. And in fact, nobody ever did. Nobody no. ever did. Anybody that tried to turn a video store into anything other than primarily a video store failed. It would be like somebody trying to take a movie theater and turn it into something else. You know, yeah. that's not why people go there people mm-hmm. came to video store to rent movies and buy snacks and that was about it and you could you could sell a few other things but not much
1: i remember there was a blockbuster uh gosh this must have been like 2009 2010 that was in tucson and i remember going in there and the whole left hand side was like merchandise yeah and all of this stuff that, and then like the right hand side was the video rentals and then you had to keep right. by the register but i just thought it was kind of odd that you can go in there and get a, a print from a movie in there. Well, not even necessarily movies, like video games and stuff, but it was, it was interesting, but talk to us about, um, you know, one of the, the big things that will, or probably a misconception that a lot of people have is that, well, Netflix was what killed blockbuster, but actually there was, there was like a lot more that went into it. There was DVDs not being up to date with not transitioning vhs is out bringing in dvds right. uh and, and then also everything with with yes the infancy of netflix and Redbox. but talk to us about how things just started to kind of crumble there at the end uh mainly starting i guess with the dvds and then the the lack of updating
0: the the system to update all yeah. of them. um Boy, it, it's 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 layer upon layer upon layer of, yes. of, of mistakes and, and failure to to improve as you go along. But um th- this this is this is where John Antiako becomes part of the story. And and he came out from Taco Bell, right? Yeah, he he well his 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 retail training was primarily in 7 Eleven. He had been with 7 mm-hmm. Eleven for 20 years. And had and had was successful there, and had <clears throat> and had been CEO of like three different retail organizations, very briefly. The last one being uh, Taco Bell. Uh, and and the, the Bill Phils experiment was obviously a complete disaster. He he was at Blockbuster for for less than a year, <laughs> and and uh, by mutual agreement, which really means he got fired. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, Some the Redstone who ran Viacom uh, got rid of him about a year after he got there and, and hired John Antiaco in 1997. And, and 1997 is a, is a watershed year for the entertainment business because not only did John Antiaco join, who was, you know, it's hard for people to understand the dominance of Blockbuster, but, Do- but Blockbuster was the most powerful. Uh, entertainment organization in the country in 1997 as broken as they were underneath it, you know, to the average person just looking at what was going on, there was more people in a blockbuster store than were in the theaters every week. I mean, it was, it was that dominant. Uh, but that was the same year when John, John came in and took over the company as CEO uh, and chairman as well. Uh, that, that DVD was being introduced by the studios to replace VHS. It was also the same year that, that Reed Hastings recognized that was an opportunity to start mailing movies through to, to, to homes instead of people going to stores to get them because DVD was small enough you could do that. You couldn't do it efficiently in a, with a VHS. People had mm-hmm. tried it, but it didn't work. It was just too big and too expensive to mail, but he, he immediately recognized uh, the opportunity and started a business called Netflix and started mailing DVDs. And you know, for the first few years, it was kind of insignificant. Uh, so those events are what kind of started the, the massive transition that would happen over the next decade, all of which was under the tutelage of John Antiocho, who stayed with the company until 2007. He was there for 10 years. And, and all of these major, major transitions, uh, happened during those 10 years, the transition to DVD, Netflix, eventually starting to stream movies in 2007. Mm-hmm. And then the, the ret- r- kiosk comes along and where you can rent movies from a vending machine in 2004. Uh, so all this happened while John Antiaco was there. Uh, so the also business, the fifty
1: million the fifty million dollar
0: oh yeah yeah well in in three years after Netflix had started they they had become you know they were still a very very small company but mm-hmm. but they had they were growing fast enough that people were starting to take them seriously but in fact, they were growing so fast they were running out of money and you probably remember the dot com crash uh when the financial markets dried up netflix was was growing fast needed capital and there weren't there wasn't any Mm -hmm. Uh, so they started looking for people to buy them and you know the obvious the obvious uh, uh target was blockbuster so they have this meeting in dallas with uh of course, John Antiakos, he tells a story, he was not in the meeting, but he walked through and said hello to Hastings and the other people that were there at the time. Uh, but this was in 2000. Netflix had a quarter of a million subscribers, which compared to Blockbuster's 30 or 40 million was not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. But what is key to that whole equation is that DVD was in its infancy. It was, it was, it only had about a five, 10% market penetration at the time. So if you just did the math and Netflix continued to grow at the rate they were growing, you could easily see where they were going to have five to 10 million subscribers if they just kept up with, with DVD growth. Uh, So they should have been taken seriously, even though they were small. But just as HEB did with us at, at H, at, uh, just as Blockbuster did with HEB a few years earlier, and a lot of other companies, they couldn't get their arms around why Netflix was a threat. So they never had a they never had a serious discussion about buying them, and they could have bought the company for fifty million. Mm. And and on top of that, Reed Hastings wanted to join. It's not like he wanted to sell it and leave. He wanted to stay on to run the buy mail part of the business and let Blockbuster run the store part of the business. Yeah. Uh, but Blockbuster passed. Netflix, uh, although they were running out of money, they, they downsized and eventually went public. They were not public at the time. They, they launched an IPO. The company was valued at, I think somewhere around a hundred million by then. And the kind of the rest is history. Uh, they became the darling of Wall Street, had access to all the capital they needed to keep growing. And within a few years, uh, you know, they were, they were not just a small threat, they became a big threat. And of course, as, Hast- as Reed Hastings said all along, the plan was never to be a permanent DVD renter. They were gonna get into streaming and that's obviously what they eventually did.
1: Yeah, I think you even put in the book. That's why they're called Netflix
0: and not DVD by mail. Yeah. Com. Yeah, they, yeah. Hey, well, I think everybody knew at the time that that, uh, you know, th- again, this is hard for people to comprehend. But back then there was not enough broad. There was not enough bandwidth to yeah. stream movies. So it wasn't an option. Uh, but we all knew that it would be eventually just nobody knew when. And uh, so anybody in the business at the time had to have their eye on the future of what the internet was going to be to, to movie watching in home, in the homes anyway. And uh, Blockbuster was never a leader in that. They just watched everybody else Mm -hmm. and didn't even do a very good job of that. Well, Blockbuster tried
1: some stuff. They had the movie pass DVD by mail. They tried the, I, I know you love the no late fees oh uh, <laughs> but they tried all these different strategies and then uh, I think in the last botbuster documentary they talked about how basically they were almost competing found themselves competing with Netflix in this DVD by, by mail we also have the store you can return the movies in but it eventually just came down to 2008 the the financial crisis just not a lot more capital Netflix ended up doing what a lot of um, uh, you know, successful companies have done. I think they downsized by like thirty percent, which gave them that capital to to kind of keep going. You mentioned the stores in Alaska. The the fun. I have to ask about
0: the whole Russell
1: Crowe
0: memorabilia. Well, that was that was one of the fun stories. And Of course, it unfortunately it came at the end. Right. But, but uh, yeah, our stores were in the reason we called our company Border Entertainment is that our stores were in Alaska as well as the border of, of Texas. So our stores were along the border of Mexico and Canada. Uh, so we called it border, but anyway, our best stores for the most part were in Alaska. Alaska is a great place for retailing. Uh, and the so the, the, the last stores were closing in Anchorage and, uh, and uh Fairbanks and just through I don't know what started it but but uh a guy by name the entertainer by the name of John Oliver who mm-hmm. who is on I guess it's HBO right yep uh I think he still has this show of uh I forget the name of it but it was running on Sunday night and it's a comedy show kind of a news comment commentary comedy show And he comes up with this idea that he's going to try to save the one of the last blockbuster stores. And this happened to be the one in Anchorage. And he tells the story about how he bought all this, this Russell Crowe memorabilia from his divorce uh, settlement and doesn't say what he's going to do with it. And all of a sudden pops up with this idea that, Hey, we want to give this to the last blockbuster store in Alaska. To try to save the store, and uh, I'm not watching the show, so I start getting phone calls at midnight. You know, with, did you see this? And long story short, it was it was difficult to to find out how to contact them, but we eventually got a hold of them, and and it was all legit. So they gave us uh, a bunch of memorabilia that that was from that there were basically props that Russell Crowe had used in several of his movies, including a jock strap that he used in, 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 a, in, in Cinderella man that became a story. And, um, so we put all that in, on display in Alaska in in that, in that store in, in Anchorage and got a lot, a huge amount of publicity over it. But as I told the producer of the show, I said, I don't think this is going to save us. So don't be surprised if we close the store shortly thereafter. And sure enough, We'd already had plans to close it. Yeah, uh, you know we were still profitable, but we knew the sales trajectory was such that we weren't going to be able to stay profitable for very long. So we had already set a date to close, and so we put we put all that in there. Some beautiful glass cases that they sent us, and uh, and it created a whole lot of buzz and a lot of and a lot of additional visits, but it didn't save the business. So. So when we closed our last store, we gave all that, didn't give it. It's on loan to the, to the store in, in Bend, Oregon, Mm. which is the, which is the, you know, the last legendary blockbuster now. So all that memorabilia is still on display in that store.
1: I was imagining walking into your
0: house and seeing like Russell
1: Crowe.
0: I don't have it yet. I don't have it (laughs) He's it's, it's still there. And when he closes, I'll, I'll get it back. And I don't know what I'm going to do with it. But yeah. it's, uh, it's uh, we gave the jockstrap back to uh, the Russell Crowe show because they used it for a bit later on. But we kept everything else. So we've got the, the robe that he wore in the ring and Cinderella Man as well as a vest he wore on in Les Miserables and a couple of other things. So it, it's... I gave the right piece back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. yeah.
1: How did that feel when you you finally, you know, turned off the lights, locked the door to your final store, like yeah. seeing kind of the everything from your block, but actually from starting off at H-E-B all the way to, to then, just it's yeah
0: full story. Well, I've been in the video business, you know, since 1980. Well, technically from if you go back to when I was running. H-E-B stores we were renting videos in the in the store so you could you could take that all the way back to the early 80s which was which predated Blockbuster this Mm -hmm. was before Blockbuster even existed to go from that all the way to the end to where when we closed our last store in in, in Alaska there was the one store left in Bend, Oregon and there was a small franchise chain left in Australia that was it that was all it was left and since then the Australia chain closed in the in the and the last store is there. So, you know, when you're, when I think when you're going through shutting a business down and trying to do it, uh, in a financially sound way, so you don't break yourself as well as providing jobs for all the people that helped you do it. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you try to stay unemotional, uh, I guess, emotionally detached from it and just try to make the right calls as you go through it, because it's all tough but yeah. you're trying not to show it, you know, <laughs> uh, cause you don't want to demoralize the troops. But, uh, I remember, I remember when I clo- when, when I went up to Alaska for the last time and I haven't been back, I, I plan to go back at some point, but I haven't been back since, um, leaving those last stores and going through all the, you know, the, the, the process of shutting them down and going to the airport and realizing, wow, this is the last time, uh, And 30 year history of the video business just ended. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, yeah, it, 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 you know, it's like, it's like you're, you're going through this process of trying to do it right. And then it all just hits you upside the head of, wow, it's over. It's over. And uh, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do at that point. Didn't know I was going to write a book. And uh, so, yeah, I, I remember just kind of breaking down at the airport and call up my wife and just, you know, just talking through it. It was, it was hard. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and, and, you know, it's one of the, it's one of the reasons that we always told blockbuster, you know, you know, you don't take us very seriously because uh, you know, we're small and maybe we don't understand your corporate perspective on the business, but what we did bring to it is, is that we were, we were financially invested in it and it was our money that we stood to lose if we didn't run it right. So we may not understand it from your perspective, but you need to understand it from our perspective as well, because uh, this is our life. And, and if it fails, we're broke. I mean, I put two kids through college where they wanted to go, uh, with the video business. Mm-hmm. And, and as well as, you know, having a decent life for myself and my family. So it's, 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 it's just, it's much more personal when you own a business for yourself, totally much more personal.
1: Parallels between your story about Blockbuster and even what I've seen in my career are, are crazy in terms of, you know. When I go back to my job in the military, uh, working with computers, I'm going to be out of my career for about six years, seven years. I'm going to be a senior non-commissioned officer. I know when I go back, I'm going to need to listen to the youngest person in the work center, the people who are out doing the job every single day and not just see it from a, well, I'm writing packages and I'm going to meetings. Reading that, that's just what really stood out to me was so many times throughout my life, not just in the military, but having leaders that don't necessarily listen to, to those that work with them and, you know, that are, that are getting down and dirty every day doing the job. So like I said, phenomenal book with that, we're going to get to the book, but what did you think of the uh, last blockbuster documentary, which ironically enough was on Netflix, still is on Netflix.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, it's uh, it's really as much the story of, of Sandy Harding, who runs the last blockbuster story. It's it's, it's that as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, a friend of mine, Ken Tisher, owns the store, but, but you know, he, he pretty much leaves it to Sandy on how to run it. So uh, it's a, you know, it's a great story. Uh, she would tell you that that store is not a real blockbuster store now as you would typically see it because uh, a lot of their business is, is novelty Things that people go there to buy, like like the shorts you showed me while ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, they sell a lot of those kind of things. They still rent movies, uh, but not near as many as they used to. Uh, but you know, it's it's a great story. In fact, I don't know if you know, but but Netflix is going to launch a uh, uh, a sitcom about the last blockbuster store later this year. It's in production right now. I think I've heard that somewhere. Yeah, I think I have. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I'm disappointed that they're doing it without the benefit of talking to me or Ken, who owns The Last Door. Yeah. We haven't heard from anybody. So I, I guess it's just a vehicle on how they're going to tell funny stories from the 90s. or I'm not sure what, exactly what it is, but I've always thought that, uh, and, and I've talked to a lot of other people that feel, have the same feeling, that, that you, could, you could set up a, a, a show a a series in a, in a blockbuster store and have a lot of fun with it. And that's, that's what they're, that's what they're planning to do.
1: How do you feel seeing all the, the nostalgia blockbuster
0: stuff out there? Uh, Well, I look at it, I guess different reasons. I, I I love it because I've got the book out, which, Mm -hmm. which uh, tells me that people are still interested. Um, there's a, you know, there's, there's a lot of, I guess, uh, it, it, as a guy that read the book, he said, I got real melancholy reading it, you know, uh, kind of miss, missed opportunities. Anytime Blockbuster comes up, I think of, of not only failure, but in my opinion, failure that was unnecessary. It was yeah, going to be missed
1: opportunities.
0: Yeah, it was going to be really, really difficult for Blockbuster or any company in that situation to transition, but they never gave themselves a chance. And 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 you know, you, you mentioned this that Netflix is getting ready to go through something very similar right now. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'll in fact, read a headline a couple of weeks ago: "Is Netflix going to be the next Blockbuster?" Well, that's kind of the thing. It, Blockbuster is synonymous with failure, not success. As big as they were and as dominant as they were, the, the theme of Blockbuster is they failed. And that's why I wrote the book, to try to explain from my perspective why that happened. Netflix has got some of the same challenges right now. They, they, were, they were first to do what they did. They got access to a whole lot of content from the studios at bargain prices because they were, they were underestimated. Now that's being taken away from them and they're having to create all their own stuff. And they're just another studio now. Yeah. Not, not quite yet, but it's that's coming. They're just going to be another studio that's trying to stream their content. Uh, So how will they adjust to that? Mm-hmm. Will they, will, you know, there, there's, there's no way they're going to be as dominant going forward as they have been over the last 10 years. So where are they going to find their place in there uh, and not, and not make, they, they can't stay a super phenomenal high growth company. It's not there anymore. So they're going to have to make some adjustments and will they do it successfully or will they not? Blockbuster is one of the greatest examples of a company that didn't. There's yeah. a lot of companies that have, uh, uh, you know, uh, one of my, I, I, I brought up, uh, I heard Keller earlier Southwest airlines went from nothing to the company that they still are. They, they've been able to do it and sustain it. Uh, they're not a high growth company anymore, but they're still the dominant air, domestic airline in the, in the United right. States. Uh, so they figured out a way to do it. We'll see if Netflix can do it.
1: Yeah, because Netflix. I mean, now there's HBO's got their own yeah. uh, originals. You got Hulu. You've got, I mean, Did, Amazon Prime.
0: Disney's been the big threat. this oh movie. Disney.
1: Yeah, and yeah. for like six dollars a month, and yeah. they are bundled with ESPN and everything. Yeah, it's yeah. it's yeah. going to be interesting. That's a that's a very valid point. Now, talk to us about your book. Like I said, I've I've read it. I loved it. I thought it was a great <laughs> business book. Uh, like you said, missed opportunities, almost every chapter, it seems like, Uh, what made you decide to write a book and tell our listeners like where they can find it?
0: Uh, Well, it, 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 it kind of started with, uh, I think a combination of, I didn't know what I was going to do when the stores were closed. And I'd always had this idea that, uh, you know, this story needs to be told and it Mm -hmm. hadn't been told. And, and because, Blockbuster had five different CEOs. There wasn't really anybody in a position to to tell the story from beginning to end. And, uh, just my longevity gave me a, I gave, I had a perspective on it from beginning to end and obviously was very frustrated through the years at, 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 how Blockbuster ran the business. Uh, so just through some discussions with, Family and some franchise friends uh, decided that yeah, I really want to do this, and I started exploring how to do it. I'm not the kind of person that can go to, to random house and get a you know a, a deal, so uh, I did like a lot of people do now. They they go to these companies that 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 will help you do it, and I chose a company called Scribe Media, which is just a great organization. Uh, and they happen to be based in Austin, but that's not why I chose them. And and I wrote it all, but they helped me every step of the way with the, with the editing and the, and the design of the book and, and all that. And uh, so it, it came out just over a year ago. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it, it became an Amazon bestseller very quickly. And that doesn't mean it made me rich or anything because it didn't. Uh, but, uh, it's, it's continuing to sell. There's still, in fact, April, this past April was the best month I've had since it came out. So there's still a lot of interest in it. And you ever uh, put your
1: finger on what that was? What was it?
0: I don't, I don't know. There was a little bit of banner in social media about some issues uh, that might've done it, but I'm not sure. Um, but you know, the most satisfying thing to me about it is that, uh, after I, after I wrote it, and, and I've had a lot of franchise friends read it. I've had a lot of corporate, corporate people read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the feedback, except for a very, very small amount, has been positive. And most important to me, nobody's challenged me on any of it. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's well-researched. Obviously, I have some opinions in there, but they're all based on fact, and I mm-hmm. and I I don't uh, I don't know that they're. I would challenge anybody to read it and dispute. Uh, they may dispute my conclusions, but they can't dispute the facts of the story. Because that, that
1: stood out to me. It it wasn't sour grapes. It was more no. Let's let's apply some logic to this. This is yeah the numbers. Yeah.
0: So as as of right now, it's it's the only. Uh, documentation of Blockbuster video from beginning to end and and it very likely will be the only one uh, you know there's been a lot of articles written about Blockbuster but nobody's written a book about it to tell the whole story from beginning to end uh, so it's the only one in print that that tells it and very likely will be the only one ever mm-hmm. so it, it's it's very satisfying to think that 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 i'm that you know i put i i I had the guts and the determination to actually do it uh when nobody else has done it and probably probably nobody else will and i think it really is as time moves on it becomes i don't think it becomes a less relevant story i think it's a Mm -hmm. it's it's incredibly relevant story to how and we haven't mentioned this but i think blockbuster is probably one of the greatest examples of a phenomenally successful startup that never transitioned to being a good operating company. Mm. Blockbuster was never a well-managed company. They were a greatly managed startup that took the country by storm but but they from if you if you get into digging into how they ran the business, you know they were terrible at it. terrible. There was not much that they did in running a video store that was that was exceptional it was okay but that's about about the only thing you can say for it it was not exceptional yeah we actually talked about this
1: before we hit record but there's still a line from your book Te- technology did not kill blockbuster blockbuster killed blockbuster
0: yeah and the, and the proof is that blockbuster was financially dead before blockbuster ever streamed a movie so mm-hmm. you, you can argue with my my conclusion but the fact is is that technology was not a threat to Blockbuster, uh, you know, before they were, before they were gone. I mean, they were, in, in 2007, when, uh, well, Blockbuster filed bankruptcy in 2010, to mm-hmm. put all this in perspective, they filed bankruptcy in 2010. Now they had been financially broken for several years before that, but they finally just got forced into bankruptcy. Right. Netflix streamed their first movie in 2007 and really it was at least four or five years later before streaming was even a significant factor in the entertainment business Mm -hmm. Uh, and blockbuster was dead by then. So, uh, you know, there's, there's no way that you can look this story of blockbuster, say technology killed it. It's just not true. It's just not true. You just, just look at the, at the timeline.
1: Yep, I think you you summed it up best earlier. Just yeah. missed opportunities, yeah, all the way through in, in management yeah. um, from the top. What when the pandemic struck in 2020? Is this when you really had time to knock out this book, or how did, how did you manage that time? You, well, no the
0: stores. It well the the last store closed in August of 2018. Uh, we had some kind of finish up stuff to do, and uh, so I was. little busy with that but but was starting to research the book and I guess I didn't start writing the book until uh 2019 Mm -hmm. well I started really really researching hard in 2019 and yeah I started writing it about the time the pandemic hit Mm -hmm. and 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 it was published in March of 2021 so yeah, I was re- I was riding it through the pandemic. So I guess in a, in a strange way that actually helped. Yeah. helped help me dedicate the time to do it. Yeah.
1: So what another thing our our listeners are probably curious of, what have you been up to now?
0: Uh, trying trying to uh, kind of figure out if I want to work more or not, and I've kind of decided I don't. <laughs> so so uh, you know, I, the book has only been out a year and Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time, you know, marketing it and watching it and trying to figure out, okay, how, how's it going to sell and where am I going to go from here? So that's, that was just a year ago. So I'm still kind of, you know, stepping back and observing all that and trying to figure out what I'm going to do next, but it's, I'm 69 years old. Uh, I'm young for my age. I don't, I don't, uh, you know, I'd I'd like to play a little bit more. So that's probably what I'm going to do.
1: Yeah. Well, what do you want your legacy to be when people mention Alan Payne? This is going to be a two-part question. When they mention you 50 years from now, grandchildren talking about you 50 years from now, what do you want them to say about you?
0: Oh, wow. Well, that gets into a whole different level of stuff, you know. that's not about business. That's that's about uh, uh, wow. I, you know, I I just I guess I just want to be known as somebody that 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 uh, used the tools I I was I had and and did the best I could and and was kind to people along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's really all. Yeah. Uh, and and, uh, and and I and I'm, I really am given given the background I came from, and I've told my kids this. Uh, you know, my parents didn't have any money, and anything that I ever had, I, I had to earn for myself, like most people from from my generation. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the, there's a lot more wealth around now than there was back then, and I so I, I wasn't an unusual case. I wasn't poor, but I didn't have any money to do anything. Uh, so the fact that I managed to take that. And, and of course we didn't even talk about, it, but I eventually bought the stores I was running and, and, and I did manage to make a little money in some difficult times and, and, and was, was able to put my, I took uh, my, 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 son, you went to university of Colorado and later got an MBA. My, my, my daughter who, who got interested in the movie business, I don't know if it was because of me, but, but got into the USC, uh, cinematic Arts school and, and and graduated from there with a double major in four years. And it's a in, big deal. And, and cinema as well as, as marketing. Uh, and I was able to pay their way the whole way and told them, you wow. know, my wife and I told them, you know, they, it, you know, you do your job, we'll do ours. Uh, we don't expect you to work, you know, go to school, do the absolute best you can at it and and we'll pay for it. And anybody that's ever put, any anybody that's looked at, at, at the prices of education now knows how much money that was. That yes. was, a, it was hundreds and hundreds of thousands. And I, and, and, and I told my daughter not too long ago, of all my accomplishments, that's, that's probably right up there in the top of being able to, to give them the opportunity to do that, uh, that I didn't get. They, They got to choose their school exactly where they wanted to go for what they wanted to learn. And, and they knew it was going to be paid for. And they both have done really, really well. So that's, uh, that's great. That's, that's,
1: there's your legacy right there.
0: That's good enough. Yeah, exactly. That's good good enough.
1: I I wish I could, hopefully I can say the same with, with my daughter in, in a couple of years. So that's kudos to you for that. And, uh, yeah they want to find your book. Where can you point them? Uh,
0: Well, it's, it's, it's probably in a a few independent bookstores around the country, but most books are sold on Amazon now. So that's where you go. You you can also find it uh, on any, any internet book selling website. Uh, But most of the sales go through Amazon as with all books nowadays.
1: Yeah. That's actually where I get, most of my books from as well. So I, that's actually where I got a copy of it, uh, at the time of recording, it's already available on the uh, book recommendation site on the shadowspodcast.com. Uh, sir, what final comments do you have for our listeners?
0: Uh, just, you know, if you're, if I, I wrote, I wrote the book to be accessible to anybody, I think that's interested in a, in a, in a, in a good business story. It's, it's, it's a business book, but it's not written like a business book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my, my whole intention was, I know that a lot of people have these nostalgic memories of blockbuster. And maybe if you want to know the business business side of it uh, it's not a difficult book to read. Uh, I don't think. And it, and yeah, there's some numbers in there, but it, but it's, it's, it's really told in story form. And, and I think maybe the biggest compliment I've got on it is that it's, it's accessible to people that are not necessarily interested in reading, reading business books. And uh, so that, I'm proud of that perspective of it too.
1: Yeah, the nostalgia piece is always huge for me. I, I think when I first talked to you, I was telling you, I, I remember Friday nights, going out, getting dinner with the family, and then we would head over to Blockbuster Rent a movie, and that was that was a huge part of my childhood. so I see the the blue yeah. ticket stub with the the yellow on it, and it just uh, brings back so many memories of of being a child and, and doing those things with with my yeah. parents. Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely go pick up a copy of the book, folks. I think you're really gonna enjoy it like you said it's, it's not a you pick up a lot of business books and I'm big into a lot of business books and some of them go way over my head and there's no worse feeling than getting about four or five chapters in. And I'm like, I, I can't, I can't finish this one. I I was not a higher up at this company, but uh, this was a a really good book to just sit down and read and just see how, I mean, even, even growing up, I was like, man, is super successful for all these, but then you really get to see like the foundation was just crumbling. Yeah. Um, right before us. So awesome read. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking time to do this. Uh, greatly appreciate it. And folks, that is going to conclude this episode of the shadows podcast. Okay. Hey shadows listeners. If you're looking to make some extra income that also impacts people, then you need to look at becoming a certified leadership coach with giant. If you don't already know giant has been in the leadership space for over 13 years. I got certified through giant in 2018, and I've been teaching ever since just to give you some context, they used to own and operate the John Maxwell brands. They ran the LeaderCast conferences where Jim Collins, Henry cloud, Malcolm Gladwell and Simon Sini, just to name a few were regular speakers. They have over 500 coaches worldwide, working in over 127 countries, and are being hired by companies like Google, Chick-fil-A, Pfizer, Delta, and more. And yes, you can do this too. I know this might sound intimidating, but Giant will literally give you everything you need to start your own coaching business from scratch. You get hands-on training from top-level coaches to learn the exact methodology and tools that six-figure coaches are using. You get an all-in-one online platform to run your entire coaching business, even if you want to work 100% remotely. And you'll get to join a thriving community of coaches from all around the world. To get started, Giant is hosting a coaching business workshop to help you learn the ins and outs of how to build a successful coaching business. This is both for experienced coaches, consultants, and those who are looking to start coaching and consulting with a little to no experience. If you wanna hear the really good news, this whole workshop, it's free, 100% free. And you can reserve your spot by going to giant.tv forward slash shadows. Why not give it a shot? What's better than making a positive change in people's lives and making some extra money in the process? giant launches a new hiring cohort every month now they only have 20 coaching slots available each month so it's first come first serve so go ahead and make sure you reserve your spot if you're ready to make an impact and get paid doing it go to giant.tv forward slash shadows giant.tv forward slash shadows